This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. Today's message is from the Book of Acts sermon series. In this series, we're diving deeper into how God has invited us into His mission, how the Holy Spirit was present at the beginning of the church and is active now, and how the local church is God's primary method to change the world. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message encourages you. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, Lord, we just thank you for what you did in first service, what you have done this morning through worship, Lord, and just uh, as we dive into your living word this morning, Lord, I ask that you would continue to move in the only way that you can move, speak in the only way that you can speak, that you would tune our hearts and our ears to hear from you this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. You are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in college and during season, every Saturday looked exactly the same for me. Wake up, brush your teeth, throw some clothes on, and head to the cafeteria for team breakfast. At team breakfast, you know, everyone's kind of eating, getting ready for the game that afternoon. And then um, our chaplain would speak. He'd share some words, he'd pray. And then as soon as he said amen, I booked it out the doors. And I was running like to the training room. I wanted to be the first person in the training room. In the training room, man, I'd get some heat. I'd get some stretching by the trainers because my body was all jacked up and they were trying to get me ready to play. Uh, I would get treatment from them for any injuries and stuff that I had, everything to kind of get me ready to play. And then I would go to the locker room, get out my cleats, throw on some shorts, a cutoff, grab a couple of the game balls. And then I would uh, grab a couple of my receivers, other quarterback, head out to the field. And we would go out there before, like, this, no gears on. The whole team's not warming up. This is the warm-up before the warm-ups. And I'm trying to get my body loose, my arm loose. And before we would start throwing, I'd put my headphones on and press play. And then it was just 10 yards apart. It'd be one step and throw. And then they back up a little bit. Then it was three steps and throw. They back up a little bit more, five steps, throw. Trying to get my arm loosened up. And I remember there was a game, uh, a couple of my teammates asked me what I was listening to in my headphones, because they said uh, the way I looked looked different than them. In football, the locker room, the stadium, and then if they have headphones on, everybody is playing like hip hop, rap, or some rock music, and everybody's head is bouncing really fast. They got a little jump to them. They're getting all excited because they can't wait to go hit somebody, and they're getting all pumped up. I looked a little different because I would take one step and throw and had a little sway to my music. My head was bobbing a little slower. And they were confused. They were like, well, why aren't you looking like us? We're all amped up. And I had to tell them, like, listen, if I get amped up like you guys, I can't think straight. Like even now, if I get really angry or I get really excited, like I, I was nervous about talking about Collide really passionately because I can't think straight. And I, I played quarterback. I needed to be able to think clearly. I needed to be able to process what the defense was doing, where they were lined up, and make sure our entire team on offense was set up in the right spot. If the play wasn't going to work, I had to adjust that play. I had about five to seven seconds to figure this out, so I needed to be clear. And so I couldn't listen to the music. I mean, when I was in college, Lil Wayne's Carter Three album had like come out, and everybody was bumping that thing on repeat. And uh, Jay Z's Blueprint album, everybody was bumping that. And then, you know, there was guys that listened to rock, which I don't listen to, so they were bumping somebody popular. <laughs> but like this, like everybody was getting amped up, and so they were like, "Hey, well, you look different. 
what are you listening to? And I had to tell him, listen, my game day playlist is a little different. I got Motown old school joints on mine. I had artists like Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, Stevie Wonder, Boys to Men. Uh, Boys to Men's Motown Philly was the first song I would play when I started warming up. And then I also had some reggae, Fiji, Jay Boog, Bob Marley, Revolution. Like I had, th that was the music I had to listen to. It calmed me, relaxed me, made me ready to play. I looked different than the rest of my team. I mean, we would do the coin toss and then our entire team would gather up. And then it was like a dumb mosh pit with no music. And we had this little chant and everybody started going crazy and they're button heads. And I'm like, you guys look dumb. We're about to go do that. <laughs> they're going absolutely nuts. And I'm in the back, like, just don't hit me. All right, like chill. I just looked different than the rest of my team that was getting ready to play. And they would just ask me, you know, why, why are you like that? Well, what's so different? It's like the people you see, uh, if you go to the gym and you see the person at the gym, they got their headphones in and before they get under the squat rack or before they get, lay on the bench to bench press a lot of weight, their head's going all fast and they're rapping or singing their song. And then you can hear them through your headphones when they start to bench and oh, oh, you're like, oh my gosh. Why are they just angry at the weight? Or the person you see at the grocery store, They've got headphones in. Everybody else in the grocery store is just pushing their cart, grabbing their, their groceries. But this person's got music on. Nobody else can hear it, but they got a little sway and they're gliding through the, the grocery store. They look really happy to be at the packed Costco. And... Or the person in the, in the car that you're driving next to, and they're rocking out so hard to the song that they, like, they look like they're at a one-person concert. They're just going for it. When I see people like that, I'm always like, man, what are you listening to? Because I want to know, is there a song I don't know about? And I want to know, are you on beat or off beat? <laughs> like, so, because, you know, to me, I'm like, you're fully off rhythm. But I don't know, uh, you could be listening to anything from Mozart to Bruno Mars. And some of the people listening to Bruno Mars, like, it looks like they've watched Bruno Mars' YouTube music videos for hours practicing the choreography. And you're watching them in the car and they're doing all the moves. I'm always interested, what are you listening to? What are you jamming out to? We've started, we've been going through the book of Acts for the last couple of months, but a couple of weeks ago, we started this series called Devoted. And really just asking the question, man, what is the early church devoted to? What should the church be devoted to? What should we be like? And I think, I think the early church, the way they lived their life looked like the people in the store or in the, in the car or at the gym, that they lived their life to a music that was different than the world and the world didn't get it. They just looked different. And today I want us to look at one thing that made the early church very different and very contagious to the rest of the world. It's the joy that they had that was so different. They were devoted to joy. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter two, verse 42. This passage, this has kind of been our jump off passage for the entire series of devoted, of, of man, what were the early church and the disciples, what were they devoted to in this Christian life? Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts 
praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I like the way the message translation does verse 46 and 47. It says, they followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. Uh, different translations will take um, the, the, the word here and translate it as glad, or some will do joyful. And for today's purpose, as we look at the disciples being devoted in the early church, devoted to joy, we're going to take kind of all the words that kind of encompasses. So joyful, joyous, rejoice, glad, etc. And under the umbrella of they were devoted to joy. The early church was so devoted to joy. They had an understanding of what real joy is. You see, real joy is more about what God has done for me, not about what is happening to me. In Acts 5, we get this story of, uh, of the apostles being arrested, and they're thrown in prison. And the high priest gathers the Sanhedrin together, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And that night, while they're in prison, it says the uh, angel of the Lord shows up, says, leave prison and go to the temple and start to tell people about this new life, this life in Christ, of who Jesus is. And the next morning, the high priest and Sanhedrin, they send a guard to go get the apostles. And when, when, they, when the guard shows up to the jail, they're gone. He's like, hey, the, the door's closed, it's locked, but they're gone. But I know where they're at. They're at the temple. And so they send them, go get them again. Arrest them a second time. But this time, don't throw them in jail. Bring them to us, we're going to kill them. And then this man by the name of Gamaliel speaks up. And he says, hey, don't you remember those other guys that claimed to be the Messiah? Because Jesus wasn't the only one. There's been others. There's been others since. He says, don't you remember those other guys that claimed to be the Messiah? They had like four or 500 followers. You remember those dudes? Remember when they died, their people scattered, and the, 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 the little faith or religion around that individual, it died out as well. So he was like, yeah, yeah, we remember that. He goes, okay, if what they say about Jesus, if this is truly from God, no matter what we do to them, it won't stop. If we kill them, it won't stop. But if this is from man, just let them go. It'll die out on its own. And so they agree. And then they, before they let them free, they flog them and they torture them and beat them. And then they let them free. And I want to focus on the apostles' response in verse 41. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The Bible does not say that they went limping out of the court with Sanhedrin. The Bible doesn't say that they were carrying each other out. My bet is, is their bodies were in severe pain. Flogging hurts. It's torture. And they don't walk out. The Bible doesn't tell us that they were being limped out or carried out. My bet is some of them had to be. It says they rejoiced after being flogged, that they rejoiced in this, that they were not focused on their present circumstances. They didn't concern themselves with being arrested twice, with being in prison, with being threatened to be killed, with being beaten. That was not their focus. Their focus was on God and what he had done for them. They focused on the grace and the mercy of the cross, the love and the forgiveness of the cross, and it produced joy in them. 
We see the early church had this devotion to joy. We see it in Acts 8 when uh, the church is under major persecution and they're being scattered and people are running for their lives. And it's everywhere the people went that they were scattered to, they took the gospel with them. They started to share the gospel, tell people about Jesus, even though there was a threat on their life every place they went. In Acts 8, we see this moment where the people are, are scattered and we find Philip in Samaria. And Philip is, is preaching the gospel, he's sharing Jesus with people, and then it tells us that amazing signs and wonders are done, and demons are cast out, and he's healing the, the lame and the paralyzed in Samaria. And the, the city's response in Acts 8.8 says there was great joy in that city. Later on in chapter 8, we see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And while he's there, uh, he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch on the road. The Ethiopian eunuch is, is reading this Old Testament passage. Philip says, hey, do you know what you're reading? He goes, how do I know if nobody tells me? Philip starts to tell him, hey, this passage is about Jesus. Here who Je here's who Jesus is. Starts to share the gospel with the man. Man gives his life to Christ. And, and, and uh, there, there's Ethiopian churches that trace their their start back to this guy that is, is believed kind of church history-wise that he was the first missionary to Ethiopia. And, and he gives his life to Christ. They come alongside some water and he's like, can I get baptized right here? And Philip's like, sure. Philip baptizes him. And in verse 39, it says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. If you don't know what a eunuch is, you could put that in your Google search history. I'm gonna let you figure that out on your own, all right? But if you do know, um, I don't know too many men as a eunuch that would be rejoicing. It says he was rejoicing. Over and over again throughout the book of Acts, we see this theme of joy in the early church. They were devoted to joy in the midst of very difficult, troubling times. And their focus wasn't on their present circumstances. It remained on Christ and the cross. We sing songs about God. That man, you're the, he's the God of the mountaintop and the valley low. And we sing these songs about uh, that we claim to believe this. But do we really believe that? Do we really have the joy of the mountaintop in the midst of a valley? It's so much more than being an optimistic person. It's so much more than looking at life with a glass half full instead of a glass half empty. It's so much more than that. Our joy meter is a great indicator of how real the gospel is in our life. If your joy meter reads like your gas tank, is it on E when times are difficult, when things aren't going your way, when you're in tough circumstances? Is it only on full when life is going how you want it? If the answer to that is yes, then why isn't the gospel as real or true during tough seasons? Why doesn't the gospel penetrate those moments of your life? Why doesn't the gospel penetrate those emotions that you feel in those times? Why isn't the gospel real then as it is in the other times? The early church understood, man, real joy is about what God has done for us. The early church also understood that real joy is both God's gift and my choice. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's desire is for all believers to have total spiritual satisfaction in our Lord and Savior. It is a prayer for the satisfied souls in Christ to know and experience the peace, hope, love, victory, joy, and power of the indwelling spirit of God. 
And notice how Paul phrases this passage, may God fill you with joy, meaning he is the source of our joy, and it is him who gives us this joy. In Galatians 5, you get the fruits of the Holy Spirit, one of them being joy. God's joy is full and complete in every way. Nothing human or circumstantial can add to it or detract from it. It is God's gift to the believer, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, joy. It is his gift to us that in him we can find joy in the midst of whatever's going on in our life. Real joy is a gift. It's also our choice. Have you ever met a grumpy Christian? You know, like the, 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 the person you avoid when you get to church. You know, like you see them and they're just always grumpy, always mopey. You just, you just, they, they like drain the life out of you because there's never joy. There's never anything good. They just constantly complain. It seems like they're choosing to be grumpy all the time. Being consistently grumpy and mopey as a Christian is sin. That's not of God. We have a choice in how we handle situations. You know, the popular saying, actions speak louder than words. If you're married, your wife has probably told you this so many times. Actions speak louder than words. For a Christian, it's our reactions, I believe, that speak the loudest. It's our reaction to situations and circumstances in life, good or bad. Our reaction, I think, that speaks the loudest to the world. Don't get me wrong. There are times, and scripture is very clear on this. There are times of grief and sorrow and pain and a heartache. The scripture is very clear, but that should not be the Christian's norm in their response to those. The Christian norms of their life should not be grief and sorrow always or grumpiness and mopiness. Joy is the pattern of the Christ, of the Christ follower. There are no fruits of the spirit that are mopey and grumpy. They are not the dwarves that are following Snow White around. That's not the pattern of the Christ follower. In sports, you get a popular saying by coaches, there's two things you can handle, uh, or two things you can control, your attitude and your effort. And what the coach is trying to tell his players is, listen, you can't control the refs. You can't control the, what they do, the penalties they call. You can't control if they're calling a fair game or not. You can't control the other team. You can't control if that guy cheap shots you. You can't control them. You can't even control your coaches, the playing time you get, the plays they call. You can't control these things. You can control your attitude and your effort. See, for us, we can't control the world around us. I think the last couple of years have made that very, very clear. We cannot control the world around us. And some of the time, we can't control what happens to us. There are consequences for our actions, but there are times that we can't control the things that happen to us. But we can choose our response in the midst of the, both the good and the bad times in our life. There was a, um, a church I grew up in. There was a single mom, two boys. Both of them killed by gun violence in like an 18-month period. And uh, I remember I'd watch her at church when she would show up. And you could tell what kind of week it was for her by the way she was dressed. If she was in jeans and a t-shirt, it was a little bit of a better week. But there were Sundays that she showed up in house shoes, like, like the literal house shoes, like Crocs or not house shoes, um, like real house shoes, you know, the ones that only stay at home, and sweats and a hoodie, and her nightgown you could still see underneath, and you knew it was a really tough week for that mom. 
she would sit right here, right where you're at, front seat, front row on the right-hand side. I'd sit in the back because I wasn't like our high school students who sit in the front. I sat in the back. And I would hang out back there. And I, I don't know what songs were played that day, those days. I don't know what the message was on. I couldn't tell you anything about that except for her. I just watched her. I had to be about 17, 18 years old at this time. And I just would watch her. And you would watch her worship, cry her eyes out, collapse into her seat as if the weight, the pain, the agony she felt was crippling her. And yet there was also this smile at times. She would get back up and worship again passionately. Like there was this, I understood the pain, the agony, the heartache. I didn't understand the joy or peace that was hand in hand with that. I remember asking her, what's happening? What's going on? She just focused on Jesus. She chose joy. She chose the fact that I was a mother to those two boys, and now they're in heaven. She chose joy in the hardest time. And, and don't get me wrong, there was pain, heartache. She told me it was every minute of every day, I feel nothing but pain and sadness. The only time I feel joy or peace is when I worship and when I pray. She chose joy. The early church also knew that real joy is defined by my focus, not my feelings. Real joy is not an experience that comes from favorable circumstance or even a human emotion. And many times I think of joy as a feeling. But we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament that Scripture teaches us that it's not about feelings. It's more about my focus. We see that in Acts 8.8. Where we get the book of Acts and they're all being, uh, the apostles are all being spread out and scattered. And in the midst of persecution and tough times, there's joy. They're focused, not the feeling of what they were going through. In Acts 20, we get Paul's farewell words to the Ephesian elders. And in his goodbye, he says this in verse 23 I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and compete and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul was not focused on the feelings of imprisonment or, or, or the hardships that were coming to him. He didn't even focus on his focus was solely on Jesus Christ. His focus is on finishing the race of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Nobody wants to hear good news from a grumpy Christian right? or a grumpy person at all. Right? Like, when a grumpy person tells you good news, you have to ask them, do they know it's good news? It's like their face, their body language isn't. And you're like, are you sure? I, I don't think it is. There's a, um, a little joke that some of our friends and I have had and uh, Pastor Dave and I have joked about it before. Um, but, you know, when you see a person that they look sad or upset or hurt, you go up and ask, hey, hey, are you doing okay? You don't look like you're doing okay. And if they respond, man, life is great, our response back is, tell your face that. <laughs> because your face is mopey and grumpy. Fix it. See, Paul knew what was waiting for him was not an easy or comfortable life. He says it's hardships, but still that wasn't his focus. 
His focus was solely on Jesus. He looked at life through the lens of eternity. Our feelings often look at life through the lens of the here and now, our present circumstances. For the Christian, the focus should be on Christ and eternity. Real joy comes from a focus on eternity. Jesus lived this out to perfection before he went to the cross. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that is so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus ran for two things, the joy set before him and sitting at the right hand throne of God the Father. He ran for the joy of exaltation. The prize Christians run for is not heaven. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are an adopted son and daughter of God the Father. Heaven is yours. Heaven's already ours. That's not what we run for. We run for the same prize that Jesus ran for. We run for the joy of exaltation God promises will be ours if we glorify him on earth as his son did. And we glorify God by living a life of obedience to him and letting his attributes shine through us. Part of that race is our devotion to joy. Jesus looked at the flogging of the, flogging of the cat of nine tails, the beating he took, the nails in his hands and his feet. He looked at the cross with a focus on eternity. That focus on eternity is how somebody would get through uh, the most unjust thing that has ever happened in our world. A man who never sinned, never did anything wrong, and didn't just take the punishment for one, but took the punishment for all. His focus was on eternity. His focus was you and I, eternity with him. The Christian life isn't about living a life for Christ. It's about Christ living in and through us. And for the Christian, that means a focus on eternity the way that Christ did. It means devoted to joy the way he saw the cross and went to it with joy. The final thing is this. Real joy causes curiosity and can be highly contagious. When Christians have the joy of Christ in them, it does two things. One, it makes other Christians and non-Christians extremely curious. That woman uh, from the church I grew up in, man, I had so many questions for her. What is happening right now? How are you doing this? How do you even believe in God after both your sons were killed in 18 months? Like, how is this even happening? I remember like, she would laugh at some stories we tell, but it wasn't the same kind of joy. There was one story I remember telling her, uh, her younger son, we went to high school camp together. And man, like the electricity went out in the building and, and like, oh, we were just like, they, they, we brought in like the, the workers and they were checking. Everything said there should be electricity, but nothing was working. Sound, lights, nothing. And the guy playing worship, man, he unplugged the guitar, just started playing acoustic and just started kind of leading in worship. And it was this powerful moment. We're just like 50 high school kids. And, and every single one of us is like on our knees. We're crying. We're worshiping. And it's this powerful moment. God is just moving in a powerful way. 
And at one point, every single one of us sitting on the ground, praying, crying, worshiping. Some of us like, don't even know what's happening. And we just can't stop it. And our youth pastor's like, listen, just start giving it to God. Whatever's on your heart, just lay it at his feet. Tell him, tell him. And he's just telling us to let it all out. Her son let it all out. We are on this hard tile floor that has to be laid on nothing but concrete. And he let it out, man. He farted. <laughs> and being in San Diego, if you were within 10 feet of him, you thought for sure it was an earthquake. Everybody could hear it. I mean, it was, and you know, everyone's trying to hold in their laughter. And then one kid like let out an accidental snicker and everybody lost it. I remember we told her about that story and she laughed, you know, and she thought it was funny, but it wasn't the same kind of joy. And so I just had so many questions. What is happening? How are you doing this? What's going on? I was so curious about what was going on there. When our joy is in Christ, it looks different than the world's happiness. And I believe it is most revealed in the most difficult times of our life. For example, man, when we grieve the death of a loved one, if that loved one knows Christ, we grieve in a different way. Yeah, we're sad, we're heartbroken, but we also grieve with joy and with hope. I remember my grandmother passed away. I was 15, I was a sophomore in high school. Remember when she passed away, man, I was angry, mad at God, I was bitter, I was frustrated. I mean, she was the glue to our family. And I was like, man, like, I didn't get it. All I felt was the pain and the heartache. No doubt in my mind, my grandma's in heaven. She had cancer. And I remember my dad telling us, hey, grandma had a conversation with us. She's got cancer. She's not going to go through any treatment. She's good. She just wants to go be with Jesus. I remember, man, it was uh, my dad, all his siblings, all the spouses and all our cousins and my siblings all in the room when she took her last breath. I remember being so mad. Now, being a little bit more mature, understanding the proper way to grieve the loss of a loved one who I know loved and knew Jesus, man, the day she took her last breath became the greatest day of her life. We grieve differently. And the world looks and goes, why are you not as sad as us? Why are you not as heartbroken as us? Well, let me tell you about the hope and the joy that I know they're in heaven. It's the greatest day of their life. It's why when I die, I've told my wife this, I've told family this, don't get a casket and bury me and get a tombstone. Don't show up and visit some gravesite. I'm not there. It's a lot of money. Don't do that. Now, if this is your plan, I'm not saying anything against you or any family. I've got family that have done it too. This is my personal preference. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong in this. But whenever that day comes, my favorite way to do a birthday since I've been a kid is a big barbecue. I don't care about going to Disneyland or any, I just want a big barbecue, everybody hanging out. I would call my aunts and ask them to cook my favorite dishes that they cook. And I just want a big barbecue. That's how I want my, my, my funeral to be. Like, I promise you, I'm not sad. I promise you, I am fully celebrating in heaven. I promise you, there's nothing but joy and happiness and, and peace. And I'm experiencing all of the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross in perfection. I promise you, I'm not sad. So I get that my family may be sad, loved ones may be sad, but please celebrate with me. 
Because for the Christian, when I die, I hope that the way we celebrate the fact that I am in heaven would then bring other people that I love and care about who don't believe in Jesus, ask the question, why are you celebrating? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. See, when we choose joy on the mountain and in the valley, the outside world starts to wonder, where does our joy come from? It automatically opens doors for a gospel conversation. People both inside and outside the church start to wonder. They start to become curious. So real joy produces curiosity in others, and it's also highly contagious. There's a pretty well-known pastor who uh, a little over a year ago lost his wife, and they have a couple of young kids, uh, like under the age of 10. And I've never met this man, don't know him personally. I have watched him from a distance. I have watched him on social media, be fully transparent, talk about the struggles of that. I've listened to every podcast he's been on. I've listened to every sermon he's preached in the last year. Just wanting to watch and go, how are you handling this? And he talks about the joy in the midst of the hardest time of his life, losing his wife, his best friend, the woman he loves and adores, and now becoming a single dad, having to communicate this to his kids, how to, how, to, how to disciple his kids in the midst of this. And I just watch. And I'll tell you, I am a Christian. I am a pastor. I mean, I'm up here doing this. And I watch him, and I'm like, man, I want to be like that. How do I be like that? How do I get some of that? Both Christians inside the church are watching you and people outside of the church. When we respond to things with joy, people start to ask, where does that come from? Where, how do you have joy like that? Let me tell you about my Jesus. There's a quote that's attributed to Francis of Assisi, and he says this, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Now, now I don't fully agree like, with the statement. I get what he's trying to say. But the Great Commission seems very clear to me. Go and tell. So I do think we're supposed to use our words and tell people about Jesus. But I get what he's trying to say. His point is, is that our lives should be a living example of the gospel, of who Jesus is. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, looking at, man, what was the church devoted to? Asking our question, why was the church devoted to these things? And how did that impact the kingdom of God and the country and the people that they came in contact with? How did it change things? We've looked at generosity and compassion, love and unity, and obviously today, joy. The early church understood this truth that the joy they have in life shows the gospel to the world through action. It makes Jesus come alive to the world. I'm going to finish with this. And I, I, was, I was racking my brain about how I was going to finish this message. And then my wife sent me this article from a lady named uh, Amy Gannett. And uh, I, man, I had all these types of ideas. And I read this. And I was like, OK, this is how we're going to end. I just want to read her words. She says, as Christians, we have the privilege of living in, ways of in the ways of heaven while still living on earth. Or put it another way, we get to dance to the music of heaven even though others can't always hear it. Part of the joy of abiding in Christ and walking with him in a daily way is that we tune our ears to hear the songs of heaven and let our lives move and bend to its rhythm. We get to let the lyrics of God's economy sink into our minds and hearts. We get to let our lives be shaped by them. We get to let our, our steps joyfully dance to the beat. 
So it should come as no surprise when others look at us like we are a little bit crazy. They can't hear the music. They don't get the appeal. They look around at the world, and all they hear are the gym noises of weights clattering together or the overhead announcement saying there is a sale in aisle five. But as we move to the, rhythm, the rhythms of the gospel, the wise will start to ask, what is it that she hears that I don't? What is bending and moving their life that I am missing out on? Friends, we have a deep joy and severe responsibility of living our lives in a winsome way that makes others wonder about the gospel. It should make them curious about the gospel's appeal. Evangelism lived out is a joyful declaration that there is salvation found in Jesus and that he is our true source of joy, that he gives us real hope, that he really does change our lives both now and into eternity. And as we live our lives this way, we shouldn't be surprised when people ask us to take off our headphones and share the music with them. Here's my prayer, her last statements. One day, the hymn of heaven will put on, be put on loudspeaker when Jesus returns and heaven collides with earth. But until then, my encouragement to ask us to do two things. First, dance to the music. Turn it all the way up. Live your faith out loud in a joyful and celebratory way. It really is good news. Let it be good to you. And second, live your life in such a way that makes others curious about what you're listening to. Live your life in a winsome way that makes people wonder about the hope of glory, about the source of your joy and satisfaction. And when someone asks, be ready to pull out the earbud and share the music with them. Let's pray. Lord, as we, uh, Lord, as we leave today, Lord, I ask that we would be a church, a body of believers devoted to joy to the real joy, to you. Lord, I pray that the way we react and respond to situations in our life would always be with joy and humility. You are the God of hope. You are faithful. You're good. You're loving, gracious. Lord, the things that the world can't do, you do in perfection. May we always have a heart of joy for what Jesus did on the cross, his atoning and accomplishing work. Lord, may we live our lives in a way that make the world ask, what music are you listening to? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.